I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking with you about the Lord's table, communion. I uh, want to talk about why we at Sanctuary believe that this is the high watermark of our gathering. And for some of us, and I believe it's a growing some of us, it is the very reason we gather together, the central reason we gather. This is a very high view of the table compared to where most of us were just some 20 years ago as evangelicals. What has informed the shift? That is what I want to chat with you a little bit this morning about. Some reflections on this, first of all, is that the Lord's table, this meal that we celebrate, was at the very heart of the early church's expression of worship. It was part of their essential DNA. Before there was any other kinds of stickiness, like creeds or uh, universal order in the church, ecclesiastical order, before there even was scriptural canon, the texts, even though they were written uh, in the first century that we now understand as the New Testament, they weren't widely distributed. Just a few churches had this or that. The Gospels came late. It wasn't until the late, the second half of the second century, 160 and plus, that when Christian writers were talking about what we can believe, they began to appeal to New Testament texts, which is very unusual. What did they appeal to before that is one I want to point out a little bit to you this morning. There were a few things that created the kind of glue that helped these, this nascent church, these early followers of Jesus. And one of them was baptism. They knew that baptism was this, this moment in which people would enter the church. As adults, oftentimes whole families would come in, which meant children were involved. They didn't have a hard time with that because I remember Jesus saying, don't hinder the children from coming unto me. Uh, so baptism was huge. They also had some ethical expectations uh, that were based on things like the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, and the issue of loving your neighbor. These were ethical concerns. Because remember, every single believing Christian was really a Jew at the beginning. And they brought with them the Jewish traditions of ethical teaching, ethical thought, and that was part of their stickiness. Another thing that was a big part of the earliest church was this prayer that the Lord taught them to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Interestingly, in the most ancient document we have that actually predates any of the writings of the New Testament is a writing called the Didache. It was initially included in the list of canonized books, but later excluded. And most scholars think only because it was just a very, very simple instructional book. It just told you what to do, how to perform communion, how to have some church order. It was very, very primitive. And one of the things it said in there was pray the prayer, and it lists the Our Father. And it instructed believers to pray three times a day, to pray the Our Father. It also gave them sort of the outlining aspects of what they called the way, which was these ethical principles of, of, of the faith. But the reality is, is what really stuck, which was absolutely prevalent and present from the beginning, was the table. There was something about this table, this meal that was celebrated, that rallied the communities. Because honestly, there were so many reasons for the church to have died to have just dissolved. I mean, because they, they, even though they started out as a Jewish kind of sect, 
or group, it quickly, just in a few years, opened the doors to the Gentiles. So now there's all kinds of ethnic diversity. And languages, they all spoke different languages. How do they stick together, right? They're all over geographically. But what kept them together was what was called the tradition of the apostles, apostolic tradition. And the tradition predates the New Testament. Again, the New Testament is being written, but it wasn't well known. And the New Testament writings, again, as I said, weren't even being referred to by writers until the second half of the second century. That's how late. Because they had to sort of vet it. As, as, as writings emerged, they would hear them, writings of Paul or the Gospels, and they would think, they would read them, and they felt that there was some sacredness about them. But there wasn't just the writings we have in the New Testament. There were dozens of other writings. Uh, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, First and Second Barnabas, all these letters that we have extant. I mean, we have copies of them. But they, the church was wrestling. Do we include these? And some of those were included early that were later discarded. And so the church was wrestling, saying, how, how do these things inform us? Not just us, but generations of us. And this may shock you, but the New Testament and the Old Testament were not finally codified for the church until... 387, 400 years after Jesus. In other words, shocking as it may seem, the Gideons were not at the cross passing out pocket New Testaments. So how do we know what to believe? What do we appeal to? For the apostolic fathers, that's the people that are right immediately following the apostles. They were ones that knew the apostles. They were that second generation or third generation. They're called the apostolic fathers because they, they, they lived from about 80 AD or CE until 150. That kind of period of time, about 70 years. And these guys are writing. We have their writings and we're listening to them. And we're listening what they are appealing to. They don't appeal to sacred texts because there is no sacred text to appeal to. I mean, they do have the Torah. They do have Psalms. I mean, they do have some of the Old Testament. They're certainly resourcing those. But in terms of New Testament texts that give us, become the norm for us, that later becomes the norm for the church and outlines what we believe in, you know, in, in firmness, that comes much later. So what were they doing? They were listening for the apostles' voice. Well, the only way they could hear the apostles' voice was by hearing the apostles through the, apostles, through the people the apostles talked to, through the people that they talked to, and you have what's called apostolic succession. So you go all the way till about 150, that's what rules the day. We see, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes this statement. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. These are the apostolic traditions. In 2 Thessalonians, he writes, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, which by word, whether by word or by mouth or by a letter from us. In other words, some of it was written, but some of it was carried by mouth. It was, it was an oral tradition. In other words, not all of the apostles' teachings were written in the New Testament. They're alluded to, but the, the traditions of how the church lived and existed was just part of the milieu, was part of who they were. They didn't need to teach on it because it was part of who the church was. 
in 2 Thessalonians 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. There's that ethical emphasis. And not according to the tradition which you received from us. Again, even though New Testament writers write about tradition, there's no place that they actually claim that they're articulating the full tradition. Because it was oral, it was in the context of the church. Which means, and this makes us evangelicals a little bit mad and maybe a little bit confused, but it means that some things the church embraced early in its inception were not specifically articulated in the Bible. Now that doesn't mean they're not alluded to, they are. But we don't get the emphasis, the central or the centrality of some of the things that they would do before the Bible was compiled. They were present. What were those? Again, they're called the apostolic succession. And to make sure that this apostolic tradition would be passed down after the deaths of the apostles, Paul said things like this, quote, this is 2 Timothy 2, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So in this passage, He's talking about four generations of apostolic succession. Paul's own generation, then Timothy's generation, then the generation that Timothy will teach, and the generation that that generation will teach in return. It keeps passing on. The early church fathers, they were like links in that chain of succession. And they recognized the necessity of the traditions that were passed down from the apostles, and they guarded those things scrupulously. Most specifically, They were OCD about the table. This was critical. And you'll see why in just a few minutes why that's true. Every time they gathered, every time they gathered as a body, it was to celebrate the table. In Acts 2, you can look it up in 42, it says when they gathered, they gathered in houses to pray, to partake in the table, and to hear the teachings of the apostles. It was central to their lives. You only see the emphasis hinted at in the New Testament. And it's easy to miss. This is why the church fathers insisted that, that, that one not forget that the church started in a, a kind of a, an environment where there was no solid, codified canon. It started in the context of apostolic tradition. So you hear as you read these early uh, uh, folks that were writing, these apostolic fathers, here's one, uh, Eusebius, he's a guy that writes this huge history of the church, and he talks about this guy named Papias. Listen, Papias, who lives about A.D. 120, so 120 CE, common era, who is now mentioned, he writes, Eusebius writes, Papias, who is now mentioned by us, affirms that he received the sayings of the apostles from those who accompanied them. And he moreover asserts that he heard in person Aristion and the Presbyter John. Papias uh, cl- claims that these were both disciples of Jesus directly. He says that he heard from them. So here's Papias saying, I talked to these guys. They walked with Jesus. They know what Jesus said. They saw what he wanted to instruct. They said, they, they told us what the, what the principles of God were. According, he mentions them frequently by name. And in his writings, he gives their traditions concerning Jesus. So this is what they're appealing to in that early second century is not some scripture because it wasn't codified yet. They were appealing to the apostles. 
We see I, uh, another guy here. His name is Clement of Alexandria. This is 2000 and, or 208. It says, well, they preserving the tradition of the blessed doctrine derived directly from the holy apostles, Peter, James, John, and Paul, the sons receiving it from the father, but few were like the fathers, came by God's will to us also to deposit those ancestral and apostolic seeds. I know it's hard. And well I know that they will exalt, I do not mean delighted with this tribute, but solely on account of the preservation of the truth according as they delivered it. For such a sketch as this will, I think, be agreeable to a soul desirous of preserving from loss the blessed tradition. So even now we're at 200. Even though the Gospels have appeared, most of Paul's writings are in usage. There's a bunch of other writings that were in usage that lost usage. But even in the midst of that, emerging text, sacred text, they're still appealing to the teachings of the apostles. Then we have Origen in 225. He writes, although there are many who believe that they themselves hold to the teachings of Christ, there are yet some among them who think differently from their predecessors. The teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even present to this time that alone is to be believed as the truth which is in no way at variance with the ecclesiastical or the apostolic tradition. And then we come, I got two more for you. We come to this guy, Epiphanius of Salamis. He's, this is right after the ratification of the canon. This is right after they say, okay, we know what we believe is the New Testament canon and the Old Testament canon. It's like in 367. This was written about 370. So this is like within three years. Here's what he writes. Quote, it is needful also to make use of tradition. For not everything can be gotten from sacred scripture. The holy apostles handed down some things in the scriptures, other things in tradition. Now what he's talking about here, he's talking about emphasis. He's saying that the way that the church does church polity, the way that the church does and approaches the services and what they did and how they're to do baptism and the instruction about baptism and how they're to approach the table and the place of the table, those are all things that are within the context and the DNA of the church that is not explicitly explained in the New Testament any more than tithing is really talked about much or praise and worship's talked about. It was just part of the culture. And so what he's saying is they say, listen, even though we have the scriptures and they nourish us and they become our norm, they become the way that we, it, it's, it's not explicitly taught all the ways that we're supposed to emphasize what we're supposed to emphasize. We get that from the tradition. Now, to be sure, post 400, once the church becomes the political arm that it becomes for the next 400, 800 years, it gets full of suck. And traditions are added that, were, that actually violate Scripture. This is bad tradition. But every historian that I've ever read that's Christian, that looks back, realizes that everything up to about 800, that those traditions that were present were present all the way back to the apostles. Augustine, I've got to quote Augustine because he's my dead friend. <laughs> this is 30 years after the canon is validated. He writes, quote, the admonition that Cyprian gives us that we should go back to the fountain, that is to apostolic tradition, and thence turn the channel of truth to our times is most excellent and should be followed without hesitation. But in regard to those observances which we carefully attend for, and which the whole world keeps and which derive not from Scripture but from tradition, 
We are given to understand that they are recommended and ordained to be kept by the apostles themselves. What are they talking about? They're talking about things like church structure, instruction on baptism, praying the Our Father consistently. Not, but nothing stood out quite like the table because it was central to Christian worship. When they gathered, they gathered to come to the table. Now, why? There's a litany of reasons. I'm just going to give you quick three ones. One is, the early church lived in a world of sacrificing. The Jews were sacrificing. I mean, even the pagans were sacrificing. Why is that? Because the world had evil in it. And there was so much evil, something or someone had to be killed over it. <laughs> you got to deal with this. So we got to kill something to deal with this problem of evil. So it was, it was actually happening everywhere. And here we have uh, the Christian message that claims that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. And as a result of his sacrifice, all other sacrifices were unnecessary. This was an amazing, radical claim. So we see in the book of Hebrews, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, but they never take away sins. They never take away evil. But when this priest, Jesus, offers for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. No more sacrifices needed. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. In other words, for evil to be gathered up and put under his feet. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's us. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. What are they saying? The church is saying that Jesus forever settled the sacrifice question. So when they gathered, they came to the table to remember it's done. It's over. And because of this one single act of sacrifice, all of us can be forgiven of all of our sins forever. So when they came to the table, they thought, Shazam! The second reason they loved coming to the table is because it was at this table that they recognized they were all brothers and sisters. No longer Jew or Gentile. No longer wealthy or poor. Scythian. Freeman. That at this table, all economic and social distinctions dissolve. Now, one of the central places to demonstrate social status in the ancient world was eating. Because when you went to eat, just re I mean, read anything, even just from the, from the Roman world, when you read of a feast, who's right in the middle? It's the richest one, the one that's provided the feast. They eat first, and then they're given to their friends in status. Their best friends and their second best friends. It's just They're given. The way the table works is you're, the most important people are served first. 
And then when you get out are the lesser people. And then you finally get to the slaves. And after the slaves, you get to the women and the children. They get the scraps. And so here's Jesus. And he says, when we gather at this table, everyone is on the same level. There are no rich people or poor people. There are no Jews or Gentiles, male or female, child or mature, struggling saint or victorious saint. It doesn't matter. You come as you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. You come. This is the place where we're just part of one another, where no longer is there room for distinction other than the fact we're just simply members of each other. It's this table that fulfilled Paul's assertion in 1 Corinthians 12. And interestingly, this particular text is articulated right after Paul says, the night that I received this from the Lord, the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. Right after he goes through that whole thing, talking about how the Lord revealed it to him, he goes into this passage. And here's where he says, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you, foot. On the contrary, those parts of the body that we think we can do without, the parts of the body that are weaker, they're indispensable. And the parts that we think have less honor, we should treat with special honor. And the parts that's, that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While they are presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. What if the church did that? So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is the table. When we gather and we walk up and we take the body and we take the bread and we take the cup and we participate in it, what we're saying is we're all the same. We're all part of one another. That's why when they came, they wanted to come to the table because everywhere else in the world, they were one-upped or put down or had to compete with each other, but not here. Here they saw their sins are completely washed away, no longer any sacrifice. They don't have to kill anything and they don't have to kill themselves. It's about him, what he's done. And when we gather, it's all we're one body together at this moment, at this table. And then the third reason that the church celebrated the table was because they believed that something supernatural happened at that table. And the early church, they resourced stories from the Old Testament to show how it spoke of Jesus. And one of the ones that they resourced was the manna. Do you remember the story of the manna? They're going through the wilderness, and then in the mornings, this bread showed up on the grass or on the ground. It was supernatural. God brought it, and they would eat it, and it would provide for them during the day. And so Jesus and the apostles say, just as manna came, Jesus said, I am the manna that's come. And Jesus basically compares that manna to this table. 
Just as supernatural as that manna was in an Old Testament, that there's something supernatural that happens here because of the word of the Lord. Let's watch it. This is out of Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he may humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, watch it, which you did not know nor did your fathers know. In other words, this manna stuff was mysterious. What is it? Don't know. From God. And our response to the table should be, what is it? Don't know. From God. That he might make you understand that man does not live by normal bread alone. But people live by everything that comes out of the mouth of God. In other words, by bread that God touches with his creative words. And then a couple of verses later, it says, in the wilderness he fed you with manna. Again, he says, which your fathers did not know. This is mysterious. That he might humble you and that he might test you and watch to do good for you in the end. There's something supernatural about this meal that you guys are picking up off the ground that will do good for you if you just pick it up. And then we read Jesus, Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. What? How does that even make any sense? I mean, this is mysterious. And yet he blesses it. He speaks creatively over the bread. And somehow, just as the manna was out of the word of God, this bread that's been broken is out of Jesus' heart. And he says, this is my body. And it's so curious to me as an evangelical, because I know my propensity to believe. You know, I want to say, I believe the Bible. And so when Jesus says, you must be born again, blast it. I'll fall on the sword on that one. You must be born again. What does that mean? Who? I don't know exactly, but you must be born again. But when Jesus says, this is my body, my response is, well, sort of. I would have rather have him say, this is sort of like my body. It would have resolved so much. But he didn't say, this is sort of like my body. He said, this is my body. Oh, what exactly are you saying? I don't, I'm not exactly saying anything. I know the debate is on. Historically, the debate has been on. You know, you hear terms like transubstantiation and consubstantiation. There's these philosophical kind of language that's thrown in to try to describe the mystery. And understand that these debates didn't come until about the 11th century. So these are new debates in the history of time. The reality is, who knows what it is? Other than... It's his body and his blood. So what confuses me? Well, welcome to the club. There's mystery here, right? And he took the cup. He gave thanks. He offered it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew in your father's kingdom. And then Jesus goes all crazy on us. In John 6. And in this particular narrative, if you read it, you read the end of what he just says. We're going to read to you in a second. 
And at the end of this pericope, at the end of this little story, you know what people do? They leave. And you know what they say? We, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? I mean, they're basically saying, this guy's crazy because of what Jesus just says. In fact, it's so disturbed people that Jesus, they all leave. Jesus didn't try to say, no, I'm just kidding. He just let them be confused. Jesus lets you be confused. We hate confusion, but he lets us be confused. And he looked at the disciples right after that happened and everybody left. You know what he said to them? You guys going to leave too? And Peter pops up and goes, where are we going to go? <laughs> You've got the words of eternal life. We're in. Right? But here's what he said. Listen to me. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. There's that manna in imagery. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Whoa, whoa, wait. If I eat of this bread, I'll live forever. What does that even mean? And, and the bread which I, which also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is offensive. This is cannibalism he's talking about. Then the Jews began to argue with each other. They're saying, what's going on? I mean, how in the world could this guy give us his flesh to eat? This is like weird. So Jesus goes on. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. <clears throat> Jesus, reel it in, reel it in. Can you just please reel this in? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, really? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. I just want to abide in the Lord. What do you mean? I want to sing songs that give me goosebumps. And I want to hear good practical preaching. That's why I go to church. That's not what they did. They had good teaching, thank God. They sung with all their hearts, but they came for the table. They were hungry for eternal life. They wanted to put that bread and put that cup in their mouth because on some level they knew they were abiding in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. See, Jesus is the true manna. Not as your fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. I am the manna that was supernatural in the old, but is now supernatural in the new. In their minds, when they came to Sunday, and they came to the table. It was like the Jews gathering the manna off the ground in the Old Testament. It was supernatural. It was God's word. It was God's provision. Only they died, and they knew by participating in this meal, they would live forever. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast for as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Do you remember the Passover lamb in the Old Testament? 
that celebrated their coming out of Egypt, what did they do with that Passover lamb? They ate it. Christ, our Passover lamb. And then 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless, so we're speaking God's creative word, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds us. We speak the blessing, we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of one bread. This meal was supernatural to them. And it was shocking to them. I mean, it's, that's the thing about these kinds of ideas. That in, in Christian theology, there's this notion of both being repelled and drawn. That there's something terrible about this idea, and yet something that pulls us to this very idea. Not unlike driving by a major car accident, and everybody slows down, and they're horrified, and yet they have to look. Something about this meal should both horrify us and make us want it. And Paul warns, and this text ought to trouble us if we believe the Bible. But you know the truth of it is we believe some of the Bible. We have a canon within a canon. We have favorite verses. All of us do this. That's why we should repent a lot. But here's Paul. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, he's talking about communion, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. He ought to think, what am I doing? What's going on here? This is at least manna, but it's more than manna. It's Christ's body and blood. What does it mean? I don't know. It's mysterious. But it ought to matter. It certainly isn't flannel board little example for kids to take the bread and remember the Lord died and dip it in the stuff, little hors d'oeuvres with Christ. If it's that pale to you, you're approaching the table in an unworthy fashion. And Paul writes, anyone who does this eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have died what what this isn't the only reason they're weak or sick or have died but some what this tells me is if this can hurt me this can help me and so when I encourage people to come to the table, we should come as we are, recognizing that all of our sins have been dressed and dealt with, recognizing that we're one together. There's no differences between us, recognizing that as we come to this table, there's something supernatural going on, and I can come when my heart's aching, and I can come when my soul is sick. I can come when I can't seem to sing because I just don't have it in me, and I can come when I can't listen to the preaching because I am just in a place I can't even listen to it. But I tell you what I can come to. I can come to the place where I grab that bread that somehow has become his body mysteriously and I dip it in that cup that somehow has become the blood and somehow as I partake of that, I can partake of it and life is communicated to my soul. So, listen, I'm telling you, 
when I talk with people about this that understand with faith what this table is, this can get you through the worst of times. When you're totally disconnected and you can hardly say, I believe in God the Father. You can hardly say, I believe in Jesus Christ. You're not even sure if you believe in the virgin birth. I mean, you are just decimated. But if you will come with brokenness and your insecurity and your doubt and you come to that table and you grab that bread, I have talked to so many who on the back end of brokenness come to communion and in that moment, life is communicated to their soul. Now this may surprise you, but no Christian from the first 16 centuries of church history would ever recognize a church that just gathered to sing, throw some user-friendly messages out there and ask people to come forward to say a prayer of commitment, but they didn't pray the Lord's Prayer and they didn't celebrate the Eucharist. Not one believer would even recognize Paul the Apostle, the apostles themselves, the followers would walk in here into a place that does that and go, what? What are they doing? Why would they miss the reason of our gathering? And yet... This is why, sanctuary, that is this. <laughs> this is why we celebrate this, because we believe that this is the most important thing that we can do. Now, in closing, let me just say this. There's nothing magical about how we do it, but I think it can be special. You know, I, you can have a meal with paper plates, and, and that's okay. And you can have a meal with beautiful plates and crystal, and that's okay. You know, I mean, it isn't like one. It's just, I think that sometimes you can celebrate and get away with it because it's worth celebrating. So even though, I mean, I, my wife and I just went to, um, we, we celebrated 40 years of dating. I started dating her on Thursday. It was our 40-year dating anniversary that we first started dating. So I didn't just bring her a hamburger wrapped in paper and a cup with drink in it in paper, right? I could have because, you know, that's, that's good food. I mean, I actually like McDonald's. Right? You can tell by my figure. But, so I'm a McDonald's guy, right? But, but this wasn't, we didn't do that. What we did is we went to a place that, that had crystal and beautiful you know, plates and linens and all that kind of thing. And I'm, my, my pocket's still hurting from what that cost me to do that. But, but it was worth doing it because it was special. It, didn't, it wasn't like it was, you know, that that was more of a meal than the sandwich and a paper meal. They're both meals. But sometimes you can do things okay and it's worth, it's okay to do it. It's okay to celebrate it. We don't have to get freaked out because somebody did something special. Right? Or if one of you, a couple of you said, I wanted to get married. Do you know that technically we could walk out on the parking lot and I could bury you out there if you had your license? We could go out in the parking lot in your jeans and flip-flops and, and, and you know, you, we could go out there and we could just grab a couple people randomly that were there and all we have to do is get you married and you get on with it, man. And it's cheaper. But for some reason, couples go, no, I want a special day. And I want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. And the girl goes, I want to buy a dress. What kind of practical dress would you like to buy? I want to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a dress I'm only going to wear one freaking time. And none of us think it's weird. And then we have this ceremony.
ceremony where everybody gathers together and everybody's got their best on. And we say things like, who gives this bride in marriage? And then we have these, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses to witness this matrimony between a man and a woman. And we say things like, do you, Harry, Johnson, Fred, whatever, their full names, give yourself to her as your wedded wife or husband, whatever. You know, we go through those vows and we, we say these things. It's very liturgical. But nobody freaks out and says, this is just dead. This is just dead freaking religion. <laughs> nobody does that. Because we think this is worth this. They don't have to do this. It could be a civil wedding. And it would still be a wedding. But it's okay to do this. Well, you know, I think it's okay to do a little extra. We used to do McUnion. We had these little plastic cups. How many of you were there? Yeah, we had these little plastic cups. They were like little, like, like little things that you put in uh, creamers. You put in, right? So you'd pull the first little la- layer off, and there was the wafer. Then you pulled the second layer off, and there was the juice. And so, I mean, it was like McUnion baby. It was fast, and it was holy. And it tasted about like the wafer and the juice were made around the time of Christ. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. But now we don't do that. Now we have this table up on the highest spot in the church. I wonder if we did that on purpose. I wonder why we have the singers down here. And even when we speak, why we don't stand on the same level. What if we actually thought this through? And we asked the question, how can we communicate to our community that the reason we're gathering is to participate in the body and the blood of Christ so that we remember no sacrifice is needed again from us or anyone else. That we can remember there's no Jew or Greek or black or white or rich or poor, struggling saint or great victorious saint. We're all one. Maybe we think that's why we do this. And, and when we do it, I just don't pray. We don't just pray a spontaneous prayer. We have a very intentional prayer. And we say it, and it's very organized. Say, well, that's just dead religion. Maybe not. Maybe we're saying we want it to be special. And maybe it's okay. It's not more special than McUnion. Right? It's not like that's any less holy. But isn't he worth a 40-year dating reunion? Dating celebration? Isn't he worth, isn't he a sacred, this moment when the body, be, blood, or the bread becomes his body and the cup becomes his blood on some mysterious level, isn't he worth something extra special? Isn't that okay? Or is it dead religion? We had to do a, an Anglican did our communion service at the Praxis Conference. And because he's only a deacon, he's on his way to priesthood, which I don't get totally what that's all about, but that, he couldn't consecrate. And so I brought the bread and I brought the wine because Anglicans use wine. It's tempting. And, and so I brought it over to the Anglican priest and he smiled and brought me in and he, he took out his stuff and he had this folded napkin that was gorgeous. It was embroidered with some crosses and he laid it on the altar then he took the bread and put it in there and he took the wine, he put it there. And then he said, would you do this with me? I said, well, I would be honored. I'm not Anglican, but I would be honored. And so he took a white stole. It looked like a, it was dress-up time. And he put this, this white stole on me. Fancy thing. Put it on, I felt, you know, 
kind of Halloweenish, you know, but, <laughs> but it was kind of cool. I'm dressing up for Jesus. And he put that on me. He put it on himself. And as we're there at the altar, he prays a specific prayer. And then once he said, this is my body, he does one of these numbers. And then when he did the cup, he does one of these numbers. And I, I remember thinking, I didn't think, oh, that dead religion. You know what I thought? Oh my gosh, here I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And do you know how many dozens of times the scripture says kneel before the Lord? When was the last time you did? When was the last time we as a community knelt before God? Now, I'm not trying to turn you into Anglican, so chill. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is there's tons of religious bigotry in evangelical churches. It's dead religion. Well, I don't have religion, I have relationship. No, you're an idiot. Well, I don't need that fancy meal to celebrate my bride. I bring her McDonald's. Er, 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 er. What is it about we American evangelicals that the more common and tawdry that it is, the more holy we think it is? Give me a minute to repent. Can't something be special without it being dead? Let's stand. I want to invite the, those that are helping us distribute the Eucharist to come forward. I want to invite the band members to come forward to prepare our hearts to receive the body and blood of Christ. Let's open our hearts in reflective pause. Let's pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God, through your goodness, we bring this bread and this cup which has come from the earth and through the work of human hands. We bring them as an offering to you. We invite your presence into this moment. We celebrate that you have chosen this meal to make us one in Christ and one with each other. We offer these gifts and ourselves in a single living act of praise. Amen. Would you please lift the bread? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body.
Father, may the Holy Spirit sanctify this bread and let it become for us the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we celebrate the great mystery which he left us as an everlasting covenant. And so we say to you, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. And would you lift the cup? In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we trust that by the power of your Spirit that you will make this cup holy and that it may become the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at whose command we celebrate this Eucharist. And so we say to you, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, grant to us that those who are nourished by this body and blood may be filled with your Holy Spirit and that we would be brought into unity. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Why don't you come and receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ? Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.